Good morning. My name is Chris Richards, and I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church. And for those of you that are visiting, it might be a little different experience here. There are, there are four pastors, and, and we move through the pulpit every four weeks or so, and we teach expositionally. So whatever book we sense that the Lord has us in, we teach from chapter 1 to chapter N, end, the very end of the chapter. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm a math guy. Everything at the end is just N. And, and then we just teach, teach verse by verse as the Lord would lead us. So today we're in 2 Corinthians in chapter 9. And we're going to back up a little bit and cover verses 6 through 11. Uh, we're not going to really spend a lot of time in verse 6 because that's what we did last week. But just to make sure we have the context. But before we start, I, oh, I want to lay a little... Um, I guess what this is is a testimony of of how this impacts me specifically, my family, just this passage. And and to, some of you will be uh, appalled by this testimony. And others of you might be encouraged that, you know, um, maybe there's not a lot of difference between us. Some of you are just gifted. You just are generous. And others of you might struggle a little more with generosity. And as I shared last week, I'm one that, that struggles a great deal with generosity. When we moved from Fort Collins to Windsor, I got to take the books back over. Now, my wife and I, we toggle who does the books every couple of years just so we kind of know what's going on. Or maybe it's because one of us just gets overwhelmed by it eventually and it's time to hand it off. But when we moved to Windsor, I got to take over the books. And I took over the books and I, I immediately went to the computer and automated everything and got it all. And I noticed that there was one problem. There was more out than in. And an immediate way to fix this problem is to quit that, just erase that line that said giving to anything. Whatever line that had been accidentally put in there by my beautiful wife who likes to give, we just erased those, and now the balance sheet looks a little bit better. And this went on for some time. And I would happily sit with you over a cup of coffee and tell you, kingdom-minded, I believe in the resurrection, and I believe that we need to be out, and we need to truly make our feet walk the talk. And I would tell you this day in and day out. And at this church, there is a kind of a policy. Pastors have no idea who gives what or how much, ever, ever. But a brother who is very close to me was the one that does the books. And when I started this, the Pastors Institute, this brother came to me and he said, Chris, there's a little inconsistency in your life. And I need to tell you about this. And we're driving down the road, and, and I argued for a second or two, but I knew this inconsistency was true. That I was living in an area of disobedience, and it isn't just in giving to the church. I have this disease <laughs> we talked about last week, white-knuckle disease, where I have a kingdom to build, and a kingdom takes funds. And if I'm going to build those things that I want to build, then I need funds. And, and thinking about giving it to somebody else who's just going to squander it anyway. They're just going to, 
you know, it's going to be all eaten up and overhead and all that. I can just justify all day long why I shouldn't be giving to anyone else, why my kingdom needs to be built just as big as theirs does. And, and that lack of generosity was more than just, uh, it was stagnating me because it was disobedience in my life. And so this brother, gent- not so gently, called me on the carpet and I went to the Lord and that next week um, we started trying to make things right. And, and it hurt a little bit right away. And then some of the words that we're going to look today, like grudgingly and under compulsion, that's me, baby. But I started and over the process of the last couple of years, some of these huge roadblocks to faith and trust that have been in my life for 20 years are crumbling. They're crumbling. And so what I'm going to go through today, that's the heart that this is coming out of, is I have seen the Lord start to, when it says that when we give, He enhances our righteousness or He repays it with grace, I've seen my life as a believer flourish and there's a number of other things too, but this is a big one because this was an area that I was, I was willingly disobeying the Lord in. And as that started to change, I started to grow and I've seen a one-to-one correlation in my faith growing with what the Lord has given me here. So that's where this is coming from. And I'm going to read one little thing here before we pray and open this up. Many of you have gone through this book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man, and there's a place in here he has about giving. You know, the idea of generosity is such a prevalent thing, especially in America, because Jesus said, point blank, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And as we search the scripture, there is no other teaching. There's no... You, somebody, some people like to say it, if you just look at your checkbook, you'll know what your priorities are. Right, Jesus said it the other way, where your heart is, that's where your treasure where your treasure is, excuse me, that's where your heart is. And so every book that you pick up that has to do with discipleship, loving the Lord, has some section in there about generosity. And this is the one that fits me. And so you get to hear it. This is a the section on the discipline of giving from disciplines of a godly man. The Corinthians were a gifted group who excelled in many commendable things other than giving. But Paul knew that despite all their excellencies, they would never become what they could and should be until they learned the grace of giving. The abiding spiritual fact is there is no way to grow into spiritual maturity without committing one's giving to the Lord. God can have our money and not our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts and not have all our money or all that we've been entrusted with. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. That was me. There were certain huge roadblocks in me growing spiritually because I refused to trust the Lord with my resources. Let's pray. Lord God, we really are jars of clay. And God, we would pray that you would fill us with your treasure. They would be overflowing, God, that we can deliver that treasure to the rest of the world. 
God, today I would pray that you would teach us through your word. God, that you would encourage us to be those people that you've called us to be. And God, I would also pray that you would give us the strength to desire that your spirit take more control in our lives this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 6 just to make sure we get the context. And go through 11. 2 Corinthians 9, starting verse 6. Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one, verse 7, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful Let me repeat that. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So just to recap last week, the sowing, the reaping, bags of seed, this is what we talked about last week, that some of the seed that you used to sow was some of the wheat that you could have eaten. And so this principle of sowing and reaping is really an issue of trust. But one of the things that hit me this week was, you know, sowing is a very purposeful thing. We don't go get concrete powder and spread it out on our field and call that sowing, right? I, I didn't know what else to use for an example, but the point is, Sowing is a very purposeful thing. You mean to take wheat and put it in the field to grow wheat, right? It's a, it's something you're using what you have to produce a crop of what you're desiring. And so this, this thing of sowing and reaping is we're using what God's given us for a sole purpose of producing a certain kind of harvest. And as we let that sit in there, we could just sit here for an hour and think, okay, what is it that I want to see harvested? What is it? What's the purpose that I have in my sowing? So that's where we were last week. And we go into verse 7. We're going to break verse 7 up into a couple of places because there's, there's a couple of warnings he gives us here. First he says, Do just as he has proposed in his heart. This is how we should give. And we're going to look at four different pieces here. How you've purposed in your heart. This means you have predetermined what you're going to give. You've thought about it. You've gone to the Lord. And in the end, 
You gave what you decided that you and the Lord had for you to give. Now, how do you do this? There's a big practical step to this. And through the books that I've read in these last couple of months about money, essentially, and generosity, there's this overwhelming teaching that God gives you a certain amount. And we agree that that amount belongs to God. Okay? In the Christian, it's hard to get away from this. It doesn't matter where you read. In the end, all of it is God's and we are stewards. Okay? And so from that, we say, you know what? Here's how much we need to live on. I have kids that are going to go to college. I have a house payment. I have uh, heat. There's, there's a number of things that I need to set aside for my livelihood. And so I take that and I, I put it here and say, that's how much I can live on. And then beyond that, there's $14. And then of that $14, I say, okay, that's the Lord's. I mean, here's what I've decided I need to live on. And here's what's left. Now, I didn't say, here's what I want to live on. I said, I went before the Lord and I purposed in my heart, what is it I need to live on? And everything beyond that, I'm going to find ways to give. Now, I just said that out of my mouth because if you were to watch my checkbook, you would say, "Uh, no, you don't. But there are some of you in this body that have that discipline already. And I'm going to jump to the conclusion and just kind of put some light on it. If that's where you are already... If you have a generous heart, you need to know that not everybody in here shares that yet. But as a believer, all of us need to. And so as we iron sharpens iron and we grow together, if that's one of those things that God has blessed you with, share it with each other. Teach that to other people. Don't just hold it because that's a gift. That's a gift. The other part of this, so you've gone, you've resolved this, you've thought about it. Okay, this isn't just some emotional decision that you made for some reason that we'll talk about in a minute. You have gone before the Lord because giving is worship. Giving is not just something we do. It's not a bill. You don't get to the beginning of the month and say, oh, I just got my bill from God. I got to pay this. And you send it off. Giving is worship. It's how we show our faith and our trust and our obedience to God. We give, and when we, one of the ways, and when we do this, this is worship. And you see this in a, in a number of churches where they do, they, they take an entire section of the service and they stop and they take a collection because that time is meant to be a vital part of the worship service because giving is worship. Now, we expect that to happen here also, even with the box in the back. And we'll talk a little bit about why the box is in the back and why we don't pass a plate here. But the idea here is that it's not a bill. It's worship. You've gone before the Lord. We have communion on the same Sunday every month. Why? Because the Word tells you, go judge yourself. And after you've judged yourself rightly, come and have the Lord's Supper. You can think about it. You know it's coming. You can spend time preparing your heart to remember what the Lord has done for you. 
Giving is the same way. It's another expression of worship. When, whenever you've set your, your times to give, go before the Lord and remember, this is worship. Not hurriedly, but remember it's worship. Not grudgingly. Grudgingly, sad, remorseful. I love this phrase. Mourning over parting with the gift. Okay, this is me. Now, I'm going to try to not just be comical here, but right now, I'm moving out of grudging into cheering, but I still have one foot that lives in a little of the grudging because I'm still attached to that gift. Now, what does grudgingly look like? The end of the month, accidentally your gas fireplace got left on for two days. And you get this little letter in the mail. It's a normal letter. You get it every month. It has a little orange thing from Excel. You open it up, and it's $600. Now, you have an option. You can have your heat shut off, or you can pay the bill. But you're very sad that you have to pay this bill. It was an accident. It's grudgingly. You just you don't want to have to do this. And that's the heart that you have. Dang it, I wish that wouldn't have happened. I wish it wasn't this way. I'm going to chop my kids' fingers off if they flip that. So I'm blowing the pilot light out. That's what I'm doing. I think it's funny, but I had to do that. All right, so you just that's grudgingly. Okay, you're not happy about it at all. Another place that this looks like, and this is how it happened in our home. Before we moved over here and I took over the books, my wife would happily write a check and give it to the church or write a check and give it wherever she was giving money. And I eventually would just see it in the ledger or something, and I'm looking at these numbers. And that is not cheerful. That's grudgingly. I was remorseful over parting with this gift. Since we have the one flesh going on, I kind of was part of that giving, but there was no happiness about it at all. And a lot of you probably have this common thing in your marriage that one of you is a giver and one of you is not. And the way we had to work through this in our family is, and and Leslie did a great job, I think, last week, because I needed to learn to be a giver. And so when Donna gave me the books, she stepped back and started praying that I would learn this and then she would encourage me through it, but... I needed to learn to be a giver and not, not be sad over that gift leaving. Uh, but this is, that's where I am right now. Not under compulsion. Now this one, because we're all good American church people, under compulsion is the reason we have that box in the back. In the Old Testament, there's a law. The tithe. There's all kinds of tithes. And, and it's an interesting study. Um, but as Danny had already gone through, the tithe had a lot of its law. God wants you to go beyond that. And he wants everything. And as we're going to talk about in a little bit, he just doesn't want you to give because you have to. Because it's the law. Because it's, well, what everybody expects you to do. It's under compulsion. And so when Danny said it this morning, we believe that giving is between you and God. And the box is in the back. You were at home. 
you went before the Lord because you're a believer. It's obedience. And in worship, you thought, okay, here's what the Lord and I have decided I'm going to give. And then in my heart, in the quietness of my heart, nothing public about it, I've decided this. And not under compulsion at all, I came in, I slipped the money in the the box, and I went and I sat down. You have some of you, and my wife and I started a, a Compassion International child, and this has been a real joyful thing for us. We have her picture, Rosa Maria, she's on our refrigerator, and, and Donna's written her letters and sent her coloring book things, and it's just all exciting. And we talked about this in, in community group a while back, and everybody else had already, they've been doing it for years. I thought, wow, well, this is kind of a new thing for us, and this is really exciting. But even then, there's no compulsion. You don't have to do it. I enjoy seeing, knowing that that money is going and, and all these things are happening for her. That's exciting. That's exciting. Right? Not under compulsion. These two, oh, the, the external law exposes by questions like this. If you've ever asked yourself, okay, now look, what's the minimum we gotta give? Just what is it? Just tell me what it is, I'm gonna give it, we'll be done. Hey, what, what does the church expect me to give? What are they going to call? What are they going to come to my house for? If I don't give this much, they're going to come and bother me. Just tell me what that is. I'll give it. We'll be done with it. That's law. That's compulsion. And God says, you know what? I don't need your money. I want you. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But it's under compulsion. And those kind of questions are driven by having this feeling that I have to do this because it's it's what's expected of me by everyone else and notice I said that differently than what's expected of me from God and I didn't say don't do it because you have to because I had to start giving because I was in disobedience so notice there's a difference between what I'm saying there I'm not being pushed to do it by some external law I'm being pushed to do it because I have an internal desire to please God And I know that my life was out of sync with what he's called me to. That is different. That is different. Now these two normally go right together. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. It sounds like this. You're mad that you have to give. I gave because the last sermon made me feel guilty. So I went home. I wrote a check. I put it in my Bible. Okay, good. Get off my back. Okay? grudgingly and under compulsion often go right together because I have to do it. Jesus quotes this from Isaiah 29, 13. He says, you know what? They were right. Uh, you, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You're going through these motions, but you hate me. And in Isaiah uh, ver- uh, chapter 1, I'm going to read this. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. This is a little long, but follow along if you have a Bible. Starting in verse 10. This is Isaiah chapter 1. And what this is going to do is tie together what grudgingly and under compulsion mean and what God's heart really is. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of your God, the people of Gomorrah, what what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough 
of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, goats, or your checkbook. I added that. When you come to me to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Who tells you to drag yourself in here if you're not mine? 13. Bring your worthless offerings to me no more. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I can't endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your want your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to be evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are white as scarlet. We hear this part of it all the time, but note what it's connected to ahead of time. Though your sins are as red as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God says, don't give to me grudgingly or under compulsion. I want you. And why not grudgingly and under compulsion? Because here's what it does. We call it box checking, right? You come and you do your deed and you think because you did your deed, you got some religion. And since you got some religion, in the last day, you're going to be okay. You get inoculated, right? You get that shot that inoculates you from true righteousness because you're, you're doing the deed without giving the heart, and God says, I want both. I want your heart, but then out of that heart, I want you to desire to do the deed. See the difference? The solution isn't to just say, okay, well, I can't give cheerfully. I, I can't give without being under compulsion or because I, as I go to give, I, I have these feelings. The, the solution isn't to just, okay, then don't do it. I brought up the communion example from uh, 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, Go and judge yourself rightly, and having done so, go partake of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't say, if you find yourself wanting, then go home. It doesn't say that. Because it assumes if you're the Lord's, then the result of you examining yourself is going to be a change. If you find that, ooh, there's something in this heart that's not working, then the assumption then is you're going to change that 
and you're going to come and you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. The solution to giving is the same way. My heart was closed off, walled off, do not enter signs all over the place. But I had to start. And so I cracked open a little bit and let the Lord in. But I started with the discipline. But I started the discipline, again, I'm repeating myself, because of a desire for obedience to God. Not because I had to. Not because his brother called me on the carpet and I wanted to look good. Because my life was in equity. It was not equal to what God called me to. And in order to get it equal, to seek righteousness, I needed to repent and come under what God called me to. We never have problems buying things that are aligned with our priorities. In my house, we actually have to have a line item in the budget called books. I buy books that I don't even expect to read. There's just something about books I love to have, and and I love to buy them, and I, I just really like books, and I'm six behind now, and I have this stack of you need to read these. I never have problems buying books ever because I'm a learn I just love to read, I love to learn. And so never do I have a problem spending money because that is my priority. And you can guess where this is going. Right? What is a solution? An excellent book. Desiring God. I'm going to read a little passage out of this because as I read this, this is what comes to mind. When we wake up in the morning, we have to go through the day and we have to spend certain amounts of energy. We just, we do things. But we do things according to what our priorities are all the time. You want to change your life, change your priorities, and automatically your life just follows it like gravity. Okay? You set your goal. That's why goal setting is so important. Right? You set your goals and you set your goals according to your, 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 your priorities and your, your life just finds a way to move over there. Okay? And you start setting habits. Let me read this. This is talking about having a wartime mentality versus a peacetime mentality. But the idea of simplicity, just living without, the idea of simplicity can be very misleading. I mean, it to refer to a lifestyle that is unencumbered by non-essentials and the criterion for essential should not be primitive, simplicity, but wartime effectiveness. Ralph Winter illustrates this idea of wartime lifestyle. The Queen Mary, lying in a harbor at Long Beach, California, is a fascinating museum of the past, used as both a luxury liner in peacetime and troop transport during the Second World War. Its present status as a museum, the length of three football fields, affords a stunning contrast between the lifestyles appropriate in peace and war. One side of a partition, you can see the dining room reconstructed to depict a peacetime table setting that was appropriate to the wealthy patrons of high culture for whom the dazzling array of knives and forks and spoons held no mystery. On the other side of the partition, the evidence of wartime atrocities are in sharp contrast. The metal tray with indentions replaced the 15 plates and saucers. Bunks, not just doubled, but eight tiers high, explain why the peacetime complement of 3,000 gave way to 15,000 people aboard the ship at wartime. How repugnant to the peacetime master 
this transformation must have been. To do it took a national emergency. The survival of a nation depended on it. The essence of the Great Commission today is that the survival of many millions of people depends on its fulfillment. As believers, we use the word here at Windsor Community Church, mission. We're on mission. We, we desire to be about God's business in a community. But do our feet reflect that charge? When we wake up in the morning, do we have a wartime mentality? During the wartime, you don't say, how big of a car can I get? You say, can I do without a bumper so that the boys can have bullets to keep them off of our shores? Right? In some cities, you only have street signs every third block or something so that they could conserve metal. And had they not done that, maybe the world would be very different. When we're truly focused on a vision, our priorities are going to change the way we do things. The questions about, okay, what's the minimum I have to give to get this done with? Go away. Because your mentality is, what do I have to do? Right? Think about wartime again just for a moment. We in America don't have any idea what this is like. Some of you may that have served or have been overseas, but... But most of us don't have any idea the fear thinking the troops are only a hundred miles away from my home. And they're coming this way. What am I going to do? And you get up and your whole life now changes because your focus is totally on making sure that you stay alive. That, that your country is whole. That you're all of a sudden the freedoms now matter that you got to go see in Washington, D.C. It's a wartime mentality. Peacetime mentality, we kick up our feet because we don't care. Things like this don't really matter. And so we ask ourselves, well, is it really sin to do this one thing or is it kind of okay? You see the difference? One is you are rushing headlong to the front lines and the other, you just kind of sitting back and enjoying life. God has called us to a mission and our finances are part of that mission. God gives the church money to fund kingdom expansion, period. And as you give, God says, wow, that's a, that's a conduit right there. It's an open conduit. You're giving to, to the kingdom expanding and God says, there's one. And he just keeps pumping right through that conduit because you keep giving and kingdom expansion is happening. It's like a garden hose. Okay? You take a garden hose, you turn on the water, water's pouring out of it freely, it's running out on the grass, and you go and you grab a water balloon because you want to catch some of this blessing. And you put the water balloon over the hose, and one of two things has got to happen. You're either going to make a really big mess. I'm glad kids aren't in here because I can see them going home doing this right now. You're either going to make a really big mess, or somebody had better turn off the spigot. And that's what verses 8 through 11 are saying to us. But before we get there, not grudgingly, not under under compulsion, and he ends it by saying, God loves a cheerful giver. Have you ever had the discussion with somebody and they, we were talking, what's God's will? 
What's God's will for my life? I, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I love having this conversation. Because I may not know where you have to go tomorrow, but I can tell you 10,000 things that God wants from you right now. I just can start here. And I can also tell you almost as many things that God doesn't want you to do tomorrow. In Proverbs 6, it says there are six things God hates, seven that he abhors. And he goes through this list. And if you're on that list, a lying tongue, haughty eyes, somebody that quickly spreads lies to, to, to make strife in a body. If that's you, that's something God doesn't want. Okay? But then we look at the other side. We say, well, what does God want? Who does God love? We look at John 3.16. Generally, God loves the world, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loves all of us that he gave his only son so that we could be reconnected, reunited with him. But then in John 13, verse 1, it says, you know what? He loved his own. So not only does he love the world, but specifically he loves his own. He loved them to the end. But then here we get even more specific and it says, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Why? And I've used this example before, but I just love this example. A husband goes to his wife and says to his wife, Honey, must I kiss you? I'm going to give that a second to set in. And she says, Yes, you must, but not that kind of must. Meaning, everything that's inside you should compel you to desire to kiss me. Everything. I love a cheerful kisser. Okay, that's pushing it. (laughs) But everything inside you is driving you to your spouse. Yes, you must kiss me, but not out of duty. I don't want you to look over at me and go, oh. Okay, I got some things I have to do now. And move. That's not it. That's not it at all. But when you're fully compelled, your joy in the action identifies the heart. If you're doing something out of duty and grudgingly, that also identifies the heart. But when you're running, and just, I just can't do it enough. That's why I titled this a generous disposition. Because it isn't just about giving. It's about making your heart become this thing that God just loves. Because you, you have so much joy in what you want to do. You have so much joy in being able to give and see God's kingdom grow and be ready for eternity that your eyes now are fully trusting in what God has told you is His plan. And so the joy in the giving is exposing a heart that trusts that what God said is true. And God loves someone who trusts him that much. This is why the Bible is packed with things about money. It's packed. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. What you love is exposed by how you use your resources and what you're connected to. And so God is always telling us, careful, careful, don't be encumbered by stuff because your heart's going to get tied down and I'm going to be this religious action that you do on the side. 
and that's not good for you, and that's not what I want. I want your whole heart. Verses 8 through 11. The meaning here is simple. God continues to give as you continue to give. There's no other way to say it. And God is able to make all grace. Look at all the alls in this. He's trying to make a very important point to us. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Paul is trying to say, this God that you serve is tremendously trustworthy. But this is a hard thing. Uh, I gotta be, for me, this is a very hard thing. Being a little less trusting maybe than most people, I struggle with the idea that what if it doesn't work out? What if I give this to God and he doesn't come through for me? Forgive me for that being a foolish thing to say, but it's an honest struggle. And some of you will relate to that. That if you give, in the end, something may not work. And this happens in marriage also, right? You talk to couples that might be struggling and you say, if you don't give everything, your marriage won't work. But the person will say, but if I give everything and he or she doesn't come through, I'm left with nothing. And you nod say, yeah, that's scary, isn't it? But if you don't lay everything on the table, then the blessing of the marriage flourishing is only going to flourish as much as you put on the table. And what you want to achieve in your marriage is this fullness that demands that you put everything there. And giving this in this passage is the same way. You want to see God use you as a conduit to just keep pouring blessing out? Give. Unencumbered. Give. It's like the garden hose. The more you give, the more that's able to pump through there. The more you give, the more that goes pumping through there. And here's what happens. Just that's happening in my life. Those roadblocks that are stopping you from growing closer to the Lord all of a sudden start to crumble. I said that I'm not trusting. That's true. I, I shared a, little while, a couple weeks ago, I'm, I'm very skeptical about things. My faith is very weak, and that's a manifestation of being skeptical and non-trusting. And so is not giving and not being generous. And there are all kinds of other places that these little personality traits, whatever you want to call them, cause problems. But as I began to give, verse 9, verse 10, and he who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It is the goal of a believer to desire righteousness. And anything, anything that disaligns you or puts you out of phase with God, you don't want in your life. And if giving is one of those things that keep hurdles and roadblocks in your life, then you need to just go for a long walk and talk to God and ask him to expose that in your heart. Because it says here, promised, as you give, the harvest of that is going to be righteousness. 
It's going to be grace. We don't give because we have to. We give because giving is a means to grace. One of my favorite psalms is test and see that the Lord is good. How often do we get to test the Lord? Test and see that he's going to come through for you. Generosity is one of those places that we can we can put it out there and stand back and see where the Lord said, hey, you just test and see that this isn't true. You give and I'm going to give back. Pack down, shove that and put it in your lap where it's just overflowing. Go ahead, test me, I dare you. But we sit back and go, well, I tested you. He comes through for you. And, and as you test and see that the Lord is good, your hunger gets more and more and more, right? The word says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness because they're going to be filled. God knows that you're dust. He knows that we're dust. And he knows that, you know, we put out maybe that token seed to see what he's going to do. But then he, he comes through for us. And he shows us that he's good, that we can trust him. Since I already did the conclusion, I think we can stop there. We taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that you just didn't leave us here floundering. But God, as we do choose to align ourselves and become more like you, more like your son, God, your word speaks to us and teaches us. God, I pray that this word today has done that, that those that that have heard it are encouraged to align with you. And God, I want to pray just for the body as a whole. Lord, those that that you just gifted with a, a desire to be generous, God, that they share that desire with others so that as a whole, we all can reap the blessing of this grace that, that comes from trusting you fully with what you've given us. God, would you help us to be a body like that? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.